Good morning, Cross Point. I want you to repeat this psalm after me. You know it. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Okay, all together now. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. How many of you uh, have heard that psalm before? Most of us. Yeah. So Psalm 118 has some familiarity to us a little bit. When I was a kid, they used to sing the song, This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. I asked Josiah to do that song, and he, just, he told me he didn't want to. Actually, I didn't ask him to, but I knew what, he, I knew what the answer would be. So, um, in, when, I, when I remember hearing that psalm, um, and I would think of it as a, it's a beautiful day. It's a wonderful day. The birds are singing, and... And it's a glorious day outside, and God gave us this day. God made this day, so let's rejoice and, and be glad in it. And, and, and that's not wrong. It's just partial. We, we don't have the full picture of what the psalmist intended for us to hear when he gave us those words. One of the duties that a pastor has is not only to tell you what the Word of God means to you, but it would, what it would mean to the people who read it when they read it. And so when the psalmist wrote this, and the, and the people of Israel would read this, they would gather in a temple. There would be the, the, the multitudes of people that would come into the temple to, to sing to give glory and honor to God, to praise God. And you've got to think amongst all the people that not everybody is is feeling all joyful about it. That there's probably one or two in the crowd that that have not had a very good day. Maybe there's been dozens in the crowds or or hundreds in the crowds. I mean, you're talking about thousands of people who would fill the house of God. And and you've got to think that some of the people weren't really feeling like they needed to be there that day. Or maybe they felt unworthy. This past week I met with a man who called the, the church line. Um, he was just looking for help um, spiritually. And so he found the number to Cross Point downtown and, and called the church line. And if you call the church line, you're going to get a voicemail. And so you leave a message and usually it's Josiah that calls you back. So Josiah called him back and... and uh, uh, and so he asked for some guidance, some pastoral care. And so later on in the week, I gave him a call and I met with him here at this YMCA uh, in the prayer chapel um, just last week. And, and, um, and I could tell that this man had, had seen brokenness. He'd seen hurt. He'd seen difficulties in his lifestyle. His countenance carried that. And so when I, when I met with him and he started describing his life and he started describing... Um, the way he felt, I, I asked him, I said, hey, if you could just tell me in, in, in one word, in one word, share your life with me. And he said, well, I'd say that the word would be lousy. And I said, well, why lousy? He said, because my whole life I've never measured up. Talking about a man who, who's lived life quite a while now. In his whole life, he's never measured up. And he said, I think that God's disappointed in me. I've never been able to please God. I don't have joy in my life. I don't have joy in my heart. And I've come because I I need some help. 
I need to find something that I've, my life has been lacking. And, and I think if, we, if we're honest with ourselves, we would all say that we've had times in our lives that have been lousy. We've all had times in our lives where we felt like we didn't measure up. We've had times in our life where we felt like we were a disappointment before God. And, and, and you think about the people who are gathering in the temple on that day. How many people would have thought that they were disqualified to go there because of the way they felt, because of the way that God viewed them? You know, much of, much of my times with the Lord is, is me untelling the things that I've told myself that aren't true, right? There's a lot of things that I've told myself that aren't true, and, and I need the gospel to tell me what's right and what's true, because the world allows these lies to slip into our mind that say we're not worthy. We're a disappointment in the eyes of God. That somehow our Heavenly Father is disappointed with us and He's ready to crush us. But the psalmist here says something so very different. He says, no matter who you are, no matter where you've been, no matter where you're going, no matter where you've come from, let all who come into the house of the Lord say... Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Israel say, His steadfast love endures forever. If you were raised up in the church like the people of Israel, if you were raised up in the faith, you come and give praise to the Lord and rejoice in the salvation that God has brought upon you from your youth. If you are of the house of Aaron, and you offer sacrifices to God. Sacrifices which, by the way, just point to the greater sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The Levitical priesthood points to the perfect priest in Jesus Christ. And so those who stand in the gap between God and man are simply people that receive the same mercy as everybody else. Me, my, I, I am that. I need the same mercy as everybody else. And I say, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His steadfast love endures forever. No matter if you've had a lousy or disappointing week, this psalm, this psalm gives us truth that we otherwise wouldn't have had if we hadn't been here. And I think God has us all here for a reason, because God wants for us to receive the truth of this psalm so that we could truly know what it means to give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His steadfast love endures forever. There's three parts to this psalm that I'm going to walk us through. Verses 1 through 4 are a call to thankful love. Thankful love. Love that we have in gratitude to God. And then there's a a shift starting at verse 5 where it seems like there's almost a personal testimonial that takes place. You could see the chorus singing verses 1 through 4, but there's almost a personal call to worship that happens from the psalmist in verses 5 through 18. There's a trusting love that we see in those verses, 5 through 18. And then from 19 through 29, we see that there is an enduring love that lasts forever. An undeserving love that God gives to His people that they would otherwise not have unless God lavished it upon them. And that's verses 19 through 29. We're going to unpack those in our passage together. You know how I can tell that my kids are thankful? 
in life. I have three kids, and they're so precious. I have twins that are eight, Camden and Adeline, and Lily, their little, six, or their little, their little sister, is six. And, and you know how I can tell that they're thankful? Well, they smile a lot when they're thankful. They just they have this brightness about them. And, and then Lily, my youngest, she, she just will give me kisses nonstop when she's thankful. She'll just kiss me time after time after time again. Even though her brother and sister won't, she'll say, that one's for Camden and that one's for Adeline. She will give me those kisses. And, and, and they don't fight one another when they're thankful. When they have hearts that are filled with gratitude, they don't fight each other for some reason. And when I buy them an ice cream cone at the store, they offer me a bite. That's a really good day when I know that my kids are grateful because that ice cream cone that I bought for them, they, they want me to taste it. You know you've bought your kids ice cream cone before and said, hey, can I have a bite? And they're like, no, that's mine. No, no, this attitude is an attitude of gratitude. And, and, and this is the way God wants his people to approach him. I've had times where, where all I could see is the entitlement. I deserve, I deserve, I deserve, I deserve. And, and, and one of the things that I did in one of those times is I started writing down the things that I thought I deserved. And, and it was a very short list. It wasn't even an accurate list. But then I started writing all the things down that I didn't deserve. And you know what that brought into my heart? An attitude of thankfulness. If you struggle with thankfulness towards God, just get out your journal and a pen and start writing down what you think God owes you. And then on the other side of the paper, start writing down this unending list of everything that God has given you that you don't deserve, that somehow he's given you. And then come into the temple. Come into worship with him. Have your own little worship service right there. Let God draw you to your knees and say to him, God, your steadfast love endures forever. May we be thankful when we come into the house of the Lord. Are you rejoicing? Are you rejoicing? If you're like me, it's, all, it's hard to rejoice. And it's hard to rejoice, not because of all the good things that God has given us, but because even in the goodness, this world is marred with brokenness. Anybody ever feel that? Even on your happiest moments, you know it's not going to last. And it's sad because it can't always be that way. There's brokenness that pervades this world. There's an author, his name is Indy Wilson. He says it like this. He says, what is the world? A large, compared to most malls, moist, inhabiting, inhabited, and spinning ball. Well, what kind of place is it? Is it? It's the round kind, the spinning kind, and the moist kind, the inhabited kind, the kind with flamingos, real and artificial, the kind where in the sky, the, the kind where water in the sky turns into beautifully symmetrical crystal flakes sculpted by artists unable, unable to stop themselves in both design and quantity. The kind of place with tiny, powerfully jawed mites assigned to the carpets to eat my dead skin as it flakes off. The kind with sharks and nose leeches 
and slithery parasitic things with barbs that will swim up you like a urinary catheter if only you oblige by peeing in a South American river. The kind with people who kill people and people who love people and people who do both. The kind with people who think water from the Ganges River is good for them and people who think eating the heart of an enemy will ward off death. And others who think they can cure their own failing brains if only they harvest enough uncommitted cells from the human young. This world is beautiful, but it's badly broken. St. Paul says that it groans, but I love it even in its groaning. I love the world as it is because I love what it will be. Do you know when the psalmist says... This is the day the Lord has made rejoice and be glad in. And I I don't think he's saying just rejoice for what it is today. But rejoice for what God is making it tomorrow. Because he's renewing this world. He is bringing the bitterness to sweetness. He's taking the brokenness and he's mending it together. Because this Sunday is is pointing us to Easter Sunday. It's not about just the blue skies and everything being rosy outside. It's about Jesus Christ who was the stone the builders rejected becoming the cornerstone. Give thanks to the Lord for He is good. His steadfast love endures forever. It's saying that every day is Easter Sunday because Jesus Christ is the cornerstone by which your faith and all of your life is to be built on. That's what we rejoice in. Not that the good stuff that happens this day, but even the bad stuff that takes place, even the stuff that we haven't planned for, because we know that this world is spinning and turning, but the reason why God set everything in motion is that we might groan for Him. And we groan for Him today. We long for Him today. That we would see His goodness and glory. Even when we think it might not be visible. Rejoice in the Lord. Because this is the day He's given for us. Be thankful for Him. Do you have a thankful love? Do you have a thankful love? Next question. Do you have a trusting love? Do you have a love that trusts in the Lord? When my kids were small, they would stand up on the table and they would have their arms out and they would be on the edge and they would just fall back and their daddy would be right there behind them to catch them. It was so great. These kids trusted me. I mean, it wasn't very smart of them or me in doing so because if I just had one slip up, then their head could have been cracked open, but that didn't happen. And they trusted me. And they would do the same thing today if I put them on the roof and said, jump. But they trust me. And and, and this is the trust that God wants for us. A a, a trust that says that He's always going to be there. It's a love that never lets us go. That's the enduring love of God. It never lets us go. That That there's nothing that can take away that love that God has for us. And this is the trusting love that we're called to as the psalmist gives us this personal testimony here. He says in verse 5, Out of my distress I called on the Lord, and the Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will fear not what I, I will not fear what can man do to me. 
The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. So the psalmist has nowhere else to go and he's in distress. The translation says literally in a tight spot. Anybody ever seen, oh brother, where art thou? You know, Everett at one point gets stuck in a tight spot. And he wakes up and he's got his fishnet over his hair. He's a Dopper Dan man, remember. And Everett says, dang, I'm in a tight spot. There's nowhere else to go. Like Delmar and Pete and Everett, we've been in a tight spot before. There hasn't been a place where we could run. There's no place that we can turn to. Where else can we go? But in my distress, says the psalmist, I called and the Lord answered me. That's an amazing thing. To have at your beck and call, which we do have, the Lord there to answer us. When we call, He does hear us. He does answer us. He's there to help us. You know, I know my dad. And my dad always answers my call. And my dad is just a glimpse. He's just a shadow of the trustworthiness of God. God's given us people in our lives to show us that. And even when they fail us, they show us that they're just a glimmer of the credibility that God offers us. When we call He will answer. Don't trust in man. Trust in God. Don't trust in man. Trust in God. It's a rather simple principle, but but I'm telling you, every one of us struggle with it today. I rely upon people's approval. And it's not right. I rely on people's approval if if I... I believe that if, if I'm to be a person that has value and significance in this world, then somehow people have to like me. You know what that's called? People-pleasing. You know what the Bible calls it? Foolishness. Trusting in man. Sometimes we trust in people because we think people give us power. And if I just get myself around this person, they'll give me the power that I need so I can have power over people and things can go in my direction. So we trust in man. Sometimes we trust in man because we want control. I want control over situations. I want control over circumstances. So I'm going to trust in this person because if I trust in this person, then I'll have control over my life. Then I'll have control over my circumstances and my situations. And sometimes we trust in man because we want comfort. If I'm around this person, then I'll have the comfort that I need. Maybe they'll offer me the wealth that I've longed for. And so we trust in man for these things that really only God can give us. What more approval than you need than the approval of God's Son, Jesus Christ, who says it is finished and so therefore God's love is given to you. Why do we long for an approval from someone else when that approval is there staring at us in the face? Why do we long for power when we have a God who is all-powerful? who says that if you just have power, you're going to jack it up. You're going to mess it up. Your life is going to be a mess if you have the power that you want. You can't control tomorrow and you're trusting in these people to provide you the control that only God who is all-sustaining, all-controlling offers to us. And then we long for comfort in this temporal world. When really there should be a measure of uncomfortability in all of us. Because like 
Indy Wilson says there's brokenness and there's beauty. And because of the brokenness and the beauty, we're never going to be able to fully rest unless our rest is in the Lord. And that He is making the world right. And so we trust not in princes or prime ministers. We trust in the power of God. And the the one that we trust in doesn't ride on Air Force One. You notice how everybody in the time of the elections thinks that the world is falling apart, right? Because somehow we put our trust in the one who rides on Air Force One. But, But listen, the Bible says, no, we put our trust in the one whose chariots are the clouds. And he rides on the winds. So Donald Trump notwithstanding, King Jesus is on the, tr- on the throne. No matter who's in office, King Jesus is the one that's ruling and reigning. And man can devise their plans, but they're truly just pawns in the hands of God, who's the one who's completely in control. And he is the one who's, in whom your destiny is secure. The Prince of Preachers, the 18th century preacher Charles Spurgeon wrote this. So powerful, he wrote it on this song. He says, We know very well the great anxiety shown by men in all their worldly conflicts to secure the aid of the powerful ally, in their lawsuits to retain the services of a powerful advocate, or in their attempts at worldly advancement to win the friendship and interest of those who can further the aims they have in view. If such and such a person be on their side, Men think that all must go well. Who's so well off as he who's able to say, the Lord is on my side? Who's better off than us right now in this world? I mean, can we really say that? Who's better off than us right now in the church today? I mean, this is not a very popular thing. To be in the church to say, the Lord is on my side. I'm not trusting in men. To say, the Lord is on my side. I'm not trusting in myself. But to say, the Lord is on my side. I have the greatest advocate that could ever stand in the gap for me. And I am trusting Him today and no one else. You you see why this is so important? The reason why it's so important is because no one deserves to be on the throne but God. You put man on the throne, they're only going to fail you. Because that's an idol. You put somebody else there where only God belongs. They will fail you. And things will begin to fall apart, whether here, now, or later, because man will fail you. But we, like Charles Spurgeon, can be so well off to say, the Lord is by my side, whom shall I fear? What can man do to me? The Lord is meant to be on the throne of the human heart. Galatians 1.10 says it this way, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. I've said it before that the Christian faith doesn't require perfection, but it requires repentance. That what disqualifies us isn't the fact that we're not perfect and that we keep on sinning. What disqualifies us is the fact that we won't repent. And I think that one of the things that I've been brought to this week is that I need to repent of putting man on the throne and seeking the approval of others because Christ cannot be my God if somebody else is. Can we repent of that? And can we take refuge in the Lord and trust in Him? 
Because although there might seem to be temporal blessings in the midst of a storm in, in another man or woman's care or help, it won't be that which can save us from the eternal fire of damnation when we've cried out for somebody else, but only God can save us. And God gives us that on this world. On this side of the grave, there's always the cry that God gives us to repentance that leads to salvation, that leaves no regret. And so we can turn to Christ and in Him find comfort. We see that putting our trust in God gives us confidence against enemies. Now, you read the next part of this, and this could be directly messianic, meaning that this can point us directly to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Nations surrounded me. The Jews and the Gentiles and the chief priests, when he was on the cross, they were all there, surrounded him. He says, in the name of the Lord, I cut them off. That's what the cross does. Cuts them off. They surrounded me. They surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. Like bees. I love how 1 Corinthians 15 says, Oh, death, where is your sting? Death's got one shot to kill us. And it does. And it does. But we don't stay dead. Because death has one sting. And Jesus Christ has overcome that sting with the power of the resurrection. And so death, I cut it off. Satan, I cut it off. Sin, I cut it off. These enemies of the gospel are the enemies that seek to bring lies into our lives so that we might be swayed away from God. You, you know, we're studying the book of Psalms right now, and we're studying the book of Psalms as it relates to the book of Hebrews, meaning that this psalm was quoted in the book of Hebrews. And the way this psalm was quoted in the book of Hebrews is the purpose of the author of Hebrews was to write to a church that was leaving God that was in danger of leaving God, that they would walk away from God because of the persecution, because of the enemies. And he uses this psalm to say, the Lord is my helper. Don't leave him. Don't leave the thing that matters most. And I plead with you, church, in the same way, what matters is that we finish the race by holding tight to the valiant Lord who triumphs over sin, death, and Satan, and all of the enemies who would seek to sway and remove our faith from us. But I say it cannot be removed. A genuine faith will always be there because genuine faith leads to genuine peace, repentance that always leads us home to the cross. And at the cross, we find that the acceptance of God says, come, and it cuts off all the enemies who are chasing us. And it leads us to be able to say, I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. Uh, this is the song of every saint. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. Every saint in heaven is recounting the deeds of the Lord. Every saint in heaven right now is recounting the deeds of the Lord. That's what the splendor of heaven brings us. It's, a, it's an eternal celebration of God's grace in our life when we didn't deserve it. I, I, if I were to ask everybody, how many times has, has, have you almost died but God saved you? We would all probably say at least once, maybe even more. 
And, 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 and even greater than a physical salvation is our eternal salvation. Because that's the love that doesn't let us go. And that's the love that God promises us today. To be able to say with the psalmist, I shall not die, but I shall live. It was said that the reformer Martin Luther had that by his bedside. I shall not die, but I shall live. When he stood against the pompous Pope who sought to see his destruction. Martin Luther says this psalm was his favorite. I'm going to read you the quote. He says, this is my psalm. My chosen psalm. I love them all. I love all of the Holy Scripture, which is my consolation in my life. But this psalm is nearest to my heart. And I have particular or peculiar right to call it mine. It saved me from many pressing dangers from which no, no emperor, nor king, nor sage, nor saint could have saved me. It's my friend, dearer to me than all the honors and power of the earth. The psalm that points us to put our hope and refuge in Jesus Christ. This is a psalm that's priceless. And this is a psalm that I pray will hold us in our gravest and darkest times of trouble, even when there's no one there to help us. God's there. And then finally, we see that the psalmist turns us to the undeserved gift of God's grace in verses 19 through 29. The enduring love of God is an undeserved gift of grace. I, I, I want to I move back one verse. It says, The Lord has disciplined me severely, but has not given me over to death. So I want to speak on that just for a moment, because I think sometimes we can take the discipline of the Lord and call it an enemy. And I want to tell you, don't do that. God's discipline, God's chastisement, even though it might bring pain, is not meant to bring punishment, but it's meant to bring repentance. It's meant to bring sanctification. And I tell you, friends, don't dismiss the people who seek to come along in your life and they, they seek to... They, they, they want to see you grow in God. That's painful. It gets uncomfortable. It might feel like they don't like us or they're not approving of us. I know when I discipline my, kill, my children, they don't always have an attitude of gratitude. and say, thank you, Daddy, for that spanking. That was just amazing. No. But I do know that a good father trains up his child in the way he goes. He should go so that when he's old, he will not depart from it. That's the love that God has for us. It's the love that endures. It's the love that stands the test of time. God disciplines us to bring us back to Him. And He doesn't give us over to death in the process. His discipline will not crush us, but will mend our brokenness back together. And we see that the enduring love of God is an undeserved gift of grace. Paul says it, when he, Paul says it this way in Ephesians 2.8. He says, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God. And the procession that the psalmist is leading the chorus of worshipers into is the victory. Open the gates of righteousness. Open the gates of righteousness so that you might go into the temple. Open up the gates to the Lord. How do we go in the temple as a righteous people? And m many would suspect that it was David who wrote this psalm. David was not by any stretch of anybody's imagination a righteous man. 
You can't call a righteous man, a, a, a man who's righteous, murderer and an adulterer. No, I, I would say that there's some unrighteousness in David's life. Just like I would say that there's unrighteousness in yours and mine. And that is what, what, what caused the man who I met with early on in the week to say that his life was lousy. Because there's things that I've done that has disappointed God, but, but somehow God's made a way. And the way that God has made is through the precious blood of Jesus Christ that's been shed on our behalf. It's the enduring love of God that's an undeserved gift of God's grace. It's because God did not allow the stone to be rejected, ultimately. Everybody's building something. And in this time, people were building things upon their faith. And they saw the stone that God had placed. And if it was David who was king, David would understand this. That David was the son of Jesse. He was the smallest son. He was the most unlikely to become king. Don't put him against Goliath. Don't have him replace Saul. No, use a different son. But no, David was God's chosen son of Israel. So that from David's line would be the chosen king of kings and lord of lords in Jesus Christ. And so while David was rejected, God exalted him. But God exalted David only so that Christ would be the ultimate cornerstone. The cornerstone by which all salvation would be built upon. By which the cornerstone by which all of our faith could rest securely on. And Jesus was rejected. The chief priests rejected him. They said that he was not the Messiah. The Romans rejected him and they put him upon the cross. The Jews rejected him when they cried out, no, no, don't, don't give me Jesus. Give us Barabbas. Barabbas is much better than Jesus because Barabbas isn't a threat to me. And the Gentiles rejected him when they crucified him. Jesus was the cornerstone that was rejected by the builders. And he is the one that holds together all of our faith. Have you ever rejected the cornerstone in your life in some way? You're building a marriage. How are you building a marriage? Is it built on the cornerstone of Jesus Christ? Are you trusting in Him as the foundation? How are you building, setting the building blocks of faith for your children? Is it on the cornerstone of your salvation, your finances, whatever it is? Is it on the cornerstone of salvation in Jesus Christ? And are you allowing Him to align your life in that way? The psalm of enduring love says that if He is your cornerstone, He will never leave you nor forsake you. And we could say, like the psalmist, this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. A week before Jesus Christ was crucified, He went into the streets of Jerusalem he had his disciples go before him and to go to a man and, and ask him for the donkey. The donkey was going to be the one that took the humble king through the streets of Jerusalem where everyone would say, Hosanna. Hosanna in the highest. And they quoted Psalm 118. They said, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, the one who comes in the name of the Lord is the one who comes in the name of the Lord right into the middle of your heart. This is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. To mend the brokenness that you and I feel the weight of. To mend the sin and shame and guilt 
that causes us to say like the gentleman I met with, man, life is just seeming to be lousy. He's the one that turns our lives around and gives us reason and hope and a future, no matter how far gone we were. Remember there was a thief next to him on the cross? That thief saw the death that he deserved and he cried out for the hope that Jesus Christ had to offer. And no matter how lousy that thief's life was, he was granted paradise. And he may have only had three minutes of paradise before he left this earth. But those three minutes of paradise were just a glimpse of eternity as he gave his fading breath away to our Savior Jesus Christ. You can give your breath right now in life to him. You trust in the cornerstone Jesus Christ. You watch how he will rebuild your life. This is what he does. He's in, the midst, he's in the business of mending our brokenness. The enduring love of God is what author Sally Lloyd-Jones of the Jesus Storybook Bible says is God's always and forever love. It's a love that when we're kids we long for and we hope that it never leaves us. And somehow when we grow and become adults we think that that love can leave us. But the gospel reminds us that, no, no, it will never. Because we, like the people of Jerusalem, can say, save now, Hosanna. Blessed is this Lord Jesus Christ who comes in the name of the Lord. You are my God and I will give thanks to you. You are my God and I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. Would you say that last line with me? For his steadfast love endures forever. Let's pray. God, thank you. Hosanna in the highest. Come save us. Lord, we're in a tight spot. And we cry out to you. God, I don't know the place that everybody in the room is in. You know the place I'm in. And I call upon you right now, and Lord, I know you're going to answer me. God, I ask that you would grant me, you would grant me rescue. Rescue from entitlement, rescue from trusting in man, and rescue from thinking that somehow I don't deserve your love. God, I know you've given me your love, and I receive it fully. And I look to the cross by which your grace is given. And I say thank you for that grace, God. It took me from a wretch and made me a saint. All because Jesus Christ did it. It is finished. We worship you now in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.